welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. When the UK decided to leave the EU, one big issue was what would happen to the millions of EU citizens resident in the UK. Some have lived the majority of their lives in the UK, while some are more recent but may nonetheless be very rooted. I myself am among those EU citizens who have made the UK their home. A new status was introduced and people had to apply before the end of June. Many either failed to do so, however, or they got stuck in the backlog. What are their rights? What risks do they face? To discuss these issues, I was joined by Olivia Vickel, co-founder and director of the Work Rights Centre. The Work Rights Centre provides guidance and support, among other things, around the new post-Brexit situation. And I started by asking Olivia Vickel to explain what settled status is and what it entails. Before I let you hear from her, however, please note that this episode was recorded in mid-July. On the Work Rights Centre's website, which is linked in the episode notes, you can have a look at the latest updates regarding the situation. But now, over to Olivia Vickel. The EU settlement scheme was introduced by the government to protect the rights of EU nationals and their family members after freedom of movement ended. So effectively, EU nationals and family members who came to the UK um, before the end of the um, Brexit transition period can apply to the Home Office, prove that they were living in the country lawfully, that they have no criminal convictions, show their valid ID, and then um, the Home Office basically grants them status. And with that status, they can continue to exercise their rights in the UK. Now, there are two types of status. There's settled status, which is effectively a form of indefinite leave to remain. And that grants them the right to live, work, um, access benefits and all kinds of public services. And that applies to people who've been living in the UK and can evidence that um, for five years or longer. That's continuous residence for five years or longer. In case people don't meet that uh, five-year continuity of residence, even if they're just living in the UK for a day before the deadline and before freedom of movement ended, they get something else called pre-settled status. And that also gives them the right to work, enter uh, the country, study, but it's a little bit more restrictive when it comes to accessing welfare currently, and that's being disputed in the courts. And um, there was a deadline that's just passed on the 30th of June for applying What are the risks and rights of those people who fail to apply before the deadline? This is a big question. Um, There are many risks, but even so, if people had the right to apply, so if they arrived in the UK before the 31st of December 2020, then they should apply regardless. So even if there's a deadline, the Home Office is more or less quietly saying, we will accept some late applications. They have discretion over that, but they say we will accept some late applications uh, under certain circumstances, such as if people can can argue that um, they've been a victim of violence or abuse, or they've been incapacitated by illness, or even if they're digitally challenged, in theory, they should be able to submit their application and the Home Office should say yes and grant them status. That's the guidance at the moment, but we have to be mindful of the fact that it's an area of of uh, practice that keeps changing and we don't know at what point the Home Office will turn around and say, okay, we don't want to be so flexible anymore. You've missed the deadline. You've lost your status. And in that case, I suppose you are at risk of deportation? In the long term, potentially. 
And again, we come back to that kind of soft post-deadline approach of the Home Office. At the moment, the Home Office says um, no one will deport you immediately if an immigration enforcement officer finds you on the street and you, you look like you had the right to apply, but you just didn't. They will give you a, a notice and give you 28 days to make a late application. But of course, there is room for error there. What does a person, you know, what does it look like? To, to, to have a right to have applied. There's a lot of room for interpretation there. Um, but I think, you know, the, the important point is apply as soon as you can. I think the Home Office knows as well that, you know, as we got closer to the deadline for applications, they didn't trickle down. They're actually, the volume increased a lot. And, you know, sadly, this is from people who had some of the most complex cases, you know, with lost documents, lost ID or expired ID, and who probably waited until the very last minute so that they could, you know, hoping that they could remedy those circumstances and make the simple application. No, it turns out they had to make a complicated application. They're stuck in a backlog. So I think the Home Office is, is um, not being as, as punitive as it could be mm. and as it has been in other cases. Just to get um, some context, how many people are we actually talking about? Well, <laughs> that's the million dollar question. No <laughs> one knows, you know, you can't know what you don't know. You can't know how many people are falling through the cracks because we don't have that perfect statistical comparison between people who are eligible and people who haven't applied. Migration statistics just aren't that good and COVID uh, made the sources that we already had on migration even even less reliable. So we don't know how many people are in that circumstance but I can tell you that at the work right center we uh, we are making up late applications every week and have been since the deadline and you were mentioning just the uh, the backlog so people stuck in the backlog so I'm guessing people who did get their application in on time but it hasn't been processed yet so what what's the situation for them well, uh, in this case, we do know how many of them there are because the Home Office publishes statistics on how many applications they received and how many applications they concluded. And according to the latest stats published um, just at the beginning of July, over half a million people were in that scenario. Wow. So waiting on an outcome. And here we have to come to that interesting distinction between what rights they have in theory and how able they are to exercise these rights in the murkier reality of you know, practice, where you know, technically there is a process. So even if you don't have status, um, the Home Office says you can prove your right to work with a certificate of application. Um, but many people haven't even received certificates of application or that kind of confirmation. And then you add, you know, you, you add more friction into the mix the moment that employers are just risk averse. It's a new process for them. They'll say, well, I, I don't know how to interpret the certificate of application or I don't have the time or the inclination. And they basically just get defensive and they penalize workers um, who, who are stuck in that backlog. We've seen that um, a couple of times. I guess then it's important to note for the background that in the UK, employers are responsible. And this is part of the hostile environment isn't it the employers are legally responsible to check immigration status that's right so the hostile environment has basically imposed the duty on the whole of civil society employers landlords education providers um, welfare providers to conduct immigration checks the moment they enter an agreement with um, 
with anyone, but in practice, you know, it's with migrant uh, migrants, and I, this is this means extra work for everyone in civil society, but also extra room for error, because the moment that you delegate this extremely important duty um, to thousands of, of other small actors, you increase the room for misinterpretation, for bias, for fear, you know, and and that has serious consequences. And from what you were just saying, then there are currently half a million people in some sort of limbo, well, potentially more people whose employers or landlords may struggle to uh, to assess their status. Yeah, so we know with certainty that there's over half a million applications stuck in the backlog. I like to think, you know, I, I hope that they won't all experience the same consequences and that some employers will find the patience to, you know, really carefully read the home office guidance and accept the, their certificates of application and not overreact. Um, but at the same time, we don't know, especially for smaller employers, for smaller landlords who, you know, won't have the time to to read that carefully, the guidance. I think there is a lot of uh, room for error there. We don't know exactly if, if you know, this is going to happen to everyone, but it is a possibility. At this moment in time, what do you think the Home Office should be doing and how is their response affected by this hostile environment? I, I think the Home Office has um, the power and the duty to call on employers and the civil society organizations that are involved in immigration checks to call on them all to be patient. And um, I think you know it, it has a strong communication apparatus. I think it can be clearer about about employers' duties to, to, to moderate their risk aversion. And, you know, I think it can remind the whole of civil society that so many applications are stuck in the backlog and they have to really balance their impulse to conduct immigration checks with their duties towards the Equalities Act and the duties to not discriminate. And also, I think the Home Office should acknowledge the fact that we have come to live in a culture of fear where I think employers... And anyone who has a duty to conduct immigration checks, they probably fear the Home Office a lot more than they fear uh, a migrant worker and their ability to, um, you know, challenge an unfair dismissal. We have to remember that there's already a relation of power between employers and workers. There's already a relation of power between the Home Office and employers. And we really don't want to uh, end up in a scenario where fear generates risk aversion, that generates defensiveness and then that ends up just excluding the most vulnerable effectively. I guess from what you're saying though it seems like employers are in quite a tricky situation from their perspective I guess they there's a lot to juggle there is there is the immigration checks but also like you mentioned discrimination checks and I mean it shouldn't in theory be difficult not to discriminate but in terms of having that sort of counter pressure from from the home office it, it might perhaps be yeah i i completely agree i don't think this is you know the the um the employment rights cases we've had recently they were never really a case where the employer was you know evil and trying to you know cut costs by not paying people it wasn't anything like that it was actually people trying to be very procedural and work by the book they were just I think either misunderstanding their obligations um, towards the home office or just being too risk averse. And we have to remember the you know, particular wordings in, in the guidance to employers. So for instance, um, 
the home office tells employers you don't have to conduct retrospective checks for people you employed before the 30th of June. So presumably you already did it uh, in the past. You already asked for their passports or IDs, and that's enough. You don't have to conduct retrospective checks. But some employers do that. They, 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 they choose to do it. And then they find out that uh, you know someone hasn't received status because they couldn't apply because their ID had expired. And now they finally applied, but they don't have proof. And also think of what that conversation does to a person's psyche. You know, suddenly you, you find yourself in a position where you have to put together all, the, all these morsels of paper to, to demonstrate, you know, rights that you, you were used to take, taking for granted for years. But you add on top of that the stress and the fear of losing your job. And effectively, once employers start digging and doing more than they have to, once they find out that, you know, someone doesn't, hasn't obtained status, then they have to act upon it. So they, they basically trigger this, this um, chain reaction. I guess you asked me what we'd want from the home office to also acknowledge the fact that introducing a digital only application is, has always been a gamble. And we found that a lot of people struggle with, with just that, with the format. It's a digital only application to make. It's a digital only status. Uh, There's no physical proof. And that makes all these conversations and requests for, for, for proving immigration status harder. So that seems quite important, the fact that employers essentially don't have to do anything then. If they were employing an EU migrant, then in terms of their responsibilities, nothing is really changed, if I understand. So they don't have to do anything for em- em- employees um, who are on their books before the 30th of June. But for people they hire from the 1st of July, then they do have to conduct right to work checks uh, using the share code and using the EU settlement scheme. Yeah. But there's a big difference between you don't have to and you shouldn't. And how has that been uh, communicated? Do you think it's been communicated in a way that, you know, some, some employees feel like they should? Um, that is a very, very good question. And it depends on how far back we go. In the very short term, if we just look at the wording and the guidance to employers, it is communicated quite clearly. And you know, if you take the time and if you have the patience and the you know calm mind to process that information, then there is a procedure there for doing right-to-work checks respectfully for people who have an application and an outcome, for people who are stuck in the backlog. Like there is a procedure, there's a line you can call. However, I think that the kind of impermanent rights abuses we see now and employers overreacting doesn't really come from that particular document. They probably come from the general you know, climate of hostility that we now live in. And I don't think it, you need to scratch too deep to remember these stories of uh, you know, employers being prosecuted for hiring workers uh, illegally. I think everyone has come to fear the home office in a way that makes them overreact. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to add? Um, I don't know if I, I feel like I could have answered better your question about what should the Home Office do. I mean, there's so many, so many things like, yeah, moderate employers' instincts, but also provide people physical proof of status because this is taking so much longer. And, you know, we can't understate the, um, the psychological complexity of operating with a process that, that's digital only, that you can't visualize. 
we, especially when you work remotely as well, uh, and especially when, you know, there are a lot of digitally challenged people in the world. We've known that always. Um, you don't have to be a digital savvy person to be a good carer, a good cleaner, a good parent, a good tutor. These are people who have been employed and doing a good job for years, but who they all suddenly and their employers have to master this process of logging into the gov.uk platform using a two-factor authentication, making sure that all of their contact details are up to date, generating that share code. Like that sounds really simple for someone who works in the knowledge economy and spends their 12 hours a day in front of a laptop. But for someone who doesn't, it can be as, as intimidating as learning a new language. And I think we, we take these barriers too lightly. And is that something that you offer help with? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's actually really interesting to reflect on what it means to, to provide advice and to do casework with migrant workers. And we're all, most of us, 90% of us at the Work Rights Center are migrant workers who, you know, feel very uh, <laughs> involved in this and, and, and care about it a great deal. And, and we've spent so long trying to produce like really easy guides, step-by-step -step guides, visual guides that just try to channel people's attention to this new platform and like familiarize themselves them with it and tame the process um so you know you'd like to think that you enter this profession thinking oh i want to know what what the law says and what the rules are and i'm just gonna give people information you never just give them information you also have to just moderate their their fears and be human you know and and try to instill a bit of humor and kindness into the process and, and effectively tame this stuff because I keep saying you can't underestimate the psychological weight of suddenly having to account for yourself and prove your status and now do it on this digital platform too. In the episode notes you can find the link to the Works Rights Centre where you can read more about the post-Brexit situation for EU citizens. But that was all for this time, thank you so much for listening.